0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with our hosts, Maria Wickvilla, who is the founder of Applicant Lab and a Harvard MBA, and Caroline D'Arty Edwards, who's cruising around on vacation right now, <laughs> was at Yellowstone and is now somewhere in the mountains in the Grand Tetons, That's right?
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: And Caroline, of course, is a former admissions director at NCAD. We're going to talk a little bit about NCAD because they're in the news lately. Yeah, and the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. So let's get to the NCAD news first because it's rather dramatic. It the is. FT actually broke the story and reported that applications for both its two uh, upcoming intakes surged fifty-seven percent. Mm which is kind of mind-blowing. Now, we knew, and we've talked about this in the past, that more people were applying in these extended rounds, and particularly given the flexibility that some schools gave applicants. But we really kind of think that the bigger increase is going to occur in 2020-2021 when people have a little more time to actually apply. Caroline, this is your school, both uh, your alma mater, as well as your former employer many years ago. Yeah. What do you think is behind that large an increase?
1: Yeah, it is it is astonishing. And I, I think there are several factors behind this. First of all, this is a very different crisis from, you know, previous recessions that have also triggered an increase in application volume. So, you know, this was so sudden, right? You just switch the economy off <laughs> overnight, whereas normally a recession, you know, it's a gradual decline or, you know, somewhat more gradual than what we've seen over the past few months. So, there was just such speed with which people were thrown out of uh, balance in their careers and and um expectations for promotions or you know applying for new jobs suddenly everything was scuppered perhaps people were losing jobs you know getting furloughed and so on so just a big bump in potential candidates in the market thinking about you know potentially now is a good time to do an mba And then INSEAD is a very international program and it opens doors internationally for candidates. And I think there is concern, and that has been growing over the past few years, about the immigration environment in the U.S. for for international students coming into the country and what that means for potentially staying post-MBA as well as potentially, you know, how the pandemic is being handled in the US, True. and you know, INSEAD announced a month or so ago that they would be, you know, on campus at least in in Fontainebleau as of September. So, you know, the the curve uh, for the pandemic seems to be looking, you know, somewhat better in Europe than it is in the US right now. So that may be playing into people's decisions. Uh, about where they apply and then you anyway, know of in course that
0: Caroline you can't go back to your native country
1: No no I was supposed to be going to to the UK this summer and I I can't go it's uh, No Americans yeah.
0: allowed in Europe
1: <laughs> No no and I you know I I'm a Brit but I'm not allowed back home it's it's very
2: depressing
1: <laughs> very very bizarre and then also, you know, they, they put a lot more flexibility into the process. So you could yes. apply without having already taken the GMAT or the GRE, which is completely unprecedented. And, you know, INSEAD is always typically very strict on admissions policy and less flexible than most other schools. And so, you know, and, and there's there's quite a high bar to applying to INSEAD because there's all the tests as well as, you know, many more essays than you have to a bit for other schools. So it's quite a heavy process and they lightened that, you know, quite significantly with, with these, you know, additional accommodations in the process. So I think, you know, a lot of people were thinking it would be nice to apply, I think, well, now's the moment because I can apply, see if I get invited to interview before I have to sit the GMAT or the G R E.
0: And you were mentioning offline that you have had a few clients who, in a normal cycle, would have ordinarily been invited to an interview at NCAD. Yes. yes. And just you were astonished to find yeah. out that no, I guess because there's so many applicants and so much competition. Yes, and after all, NCAD really can't increase its class size much beyond it's slightly over a thousand already for the two intakes.
1: Yes, yeah. So you
0: That's know, right. <laughs> there's limited capacity.
1: Yes, and um, you know they, they so they will be starting on campus in September, but they have to implement social distancing as well. So that really limits the size of the the, the student population. Um, True. So yes, I, I I think there was you know a big surge in application volume for the January intake between round one and round two, and so they've released decisions for interviews for round two, and you know clearly there'd been a big bump at that stage in in volume.
0: The other big news that's occurred is the arrival of Erica James at the Wharton School. She is, as many of you already know, the first woman and the first person of color to be dean at Wharton in its 139-year history. She obviously arrives at a time when the national conversation in the United States is very much about racial injustice and economic inequality. And so the expectations on her and both the celebration of her arrival are quite high. In fact, she started her first day at Wharton with an interview on a network morning television show, Good Morning America, which uh, is certainly unusual for a business school dean. I don't even remember any business school deans ever being on an actual network morning show. Maria, do you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, and that's probably not a bad thing. I mean, (laughs) these deans are lovely, but they're not always exactly the most, uh, you know, TV-worthy, (laughs) binge-worthy folks (laughs) to watch.
0: That is true. (laughs) What what do you think it signifies? I mean, I'm, just to step back and say, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a big deal, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a wonderful, I, you know. I'm I'm really excited for Wharton for making a step like this and for uh, putting someone, you know, like her, in this position of of power. I'm I'm just I'm delighted. I you know <laughs> I can't really say much else than that. I'm just I love it.
0: Yeah, and you know, at a a Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton, none none of the three, until Erica came to Wharton, has ever had a woman. None of the three has ever had a person of color in that job. So it really is quite a big deal. And she came to Wharton with a good amount of experience. She spent a half dozen years at Emory as the dean there. She had spent 13 years before that at uh, Darden at the University of Virginia as a professor whose expertise was in crisis uh, leadership, as well as uh, diversity in work groups. And she held a very early position at Darden as the head of diversity and inclusion there, which is now a title that's become much more popular. But when she had it, it was not. And she is, to my knowledge, the only business school dean ever to actually have a case study written about her in her professional career and that case study was done years ago at Darden. It's a fascinating case study about, uh, women in the workplace and balancing their, you know, personal life. Uh, she had a husband who was an engineer at ExxonMobil, uh, who traveled a lot. And, um, she also had children, has two children. And that's, a, it's a really interesting case study. You can find it online, actually. Uh, we've referred to it at Poets and Quants. So, you know, uh, we wish her great success. Uh, We're proud of her, too. And, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting ride because it's certainly going to be a challenge given the pandemic, given the recession, which is putting tremendous strain on higher education budgets, and given the higher expectations for her in a time when uh, race and equality have become major talking points. And, And more than that, people don't want talk anymore. They want action. And, you know, business schools as institutions, like all other institutions have not really, you know, led the way. So, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how she can do that because we do know that <laughs> business schools that faculty is pretty entrenched and generally holds uh, most of the power in a, a business school. Deans have famously said, being a dean is like herding yeah. a bunch of cats. <laughs>
2: uh, it's very hard. I would say prima donnas rather so, than
0: cats. <laughs> prima donnas. <laughs> and, and actually, yeah. you speak from experience because at NCAD, faculty oh, yes. are on the admissions yes, they are. team. The admissions
1: committee, is, admissions committee is half faculty, half alumni. So it's a very interesting And dynamic. they make admissions sure. decisions, Yeah.
0: which is very unusual yeah. for most schools. And quite actually, I think it's actually unique, right?
1: Yeah. I was the first admissions director who was a voting member of the admissions committee at INSEAD.
0: Wow, that's yeah. remarkable. You would think that faculty actually wouldn't want to be involved in the admission decisions, that they'd be, you know, it, they wouldn't want to – I'm going to just put it out there. Uh, they wouldn't want to detract from their time doing research.
1: Well, I, I think, you know, it, it, it did work well in that, you know, they bring different perspectives, right? The alumni bring this perspective of – you know, how is this person performed professionally? What is their leadership potential? You know, they're really focusing on the career side and the faculty want the smartest people in their classroom. So, you know, it, it is a good combination. And you we would have several people in the room discussing each case. So, you know, it's not that you just have the the accounting professor who is totally obsessed with the quant GMAT and digs in his heels and won't let someone through who hasn't got an 80% quant.
2: <laughs> Although there would
1: sometimes be some tense discussions about, uh, you know, the the academic requirements and faculty digging in their heels on, on that front.
0: Mm, yeah. Oh, well. Well, talking about admissions, you know, last time what we did was we went through some very common questions that active applicants have. And we really only got through half of them. These questions were, were gathered through social listening on community boards and uh, different sites. And so we wanted to get to the second set because some of these are really interesting. And so let me ask the two of you, well, let's just go through them. Now, here's a, here's one that I, I think is kind of cool. and And what's good about this is that you can answer from two different perspectives, right? So Maria can answer from the perspective of someone who's actually interviewed many people uh, for Princeton, her undergraduate institution, and who has since been involved in admissions through applicant lab. And, you know, Caroline actually has the perspective of having made those decisions inside of the admissions committee. So here's the first one. What are some red flags you look for when reviewing an application? Maria?
2: (laughs) I mean, I I think... This is this is if if it were just simply one or two red flags, then admissions, none none of us would have jobs because admissions would be a much simpler process for everyone. I think there are a lot of red flags. But if I had to pick one, I think one, uh, the biggest red flag would be any indication that there is this candidate has low EQ, that they are either not good with people or awkward with others, not really able to get along with others, or heaven forbid, very arrogant and full of themselves. Uh, and the reason I think that that's a red flag is that, first of all, business schools themselves are very community oriented. There's a lot of teamwork involved in the on the campus, but there's also a lot of teamwork involved in real life afterwards. And I think, you know, even just anecdotally, when I when my husband and I were talking about this a couple of months ago, we, we were... Sort of looking through people that we knew in college who were academically superstars, but who perhaps weren't very nice. <laughs> um, mm. You know, they they've had different career uh, outcomes that perhaps have been a little suboptimal, despite their enormous brains, <laughs> because they have not treated other people well. Uh, and so, and so, I I do think that I mean, there's always going to be the exception. There's always going to be the the jerks who rise to the top. But I, you know, I think in this increasingly interconnected world, a little you know, a dose of humility. And having good people skills is going to be even more important going forward. And so, for me, I think that would be the biggest red flag. I, I any if it, if I if I encountered someone who was just insufferably arrogant, nothing else I think would yeah. be able to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and that red flag gets unfurled in essay writing. I'm assuming through p- potential recommendation letters, and then ultimately by the interview, right?
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Especially on the resume, if if somebody, for example, uh, if, you know, I I think uh, when you start reading enough resumes, you start to get a sense of what's realistic and what's not realistic. So if someone who is two years out of college is claiming credit for inventing the internet, (laughs) you can (laughs) sort of say, "Mm, well, you know, not really sure that that's, that's accurate. Uh, Or if in an essay, for example, if they take full credit for like, Man, the entire company was sinking, was a sinking ship. But then I single handedly saved the day. Or if they throw other people under the bus, you know, like, oh, man, all those other idiots. Good thing I was here because I turned it around. Whew. That that kind of that kind of self aggrandizement, I think, is a, is a pretty bad, pretty bad look.
0: Caroline, what are red flags uh, that you had at NCAD and that you see today?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with Maria. EQ is very important. All the interpersonal skills, and um, you know, a place that that comes through in applications as well. You know, a lot of schools have questions on, you know, what are your weaknesses, or when give an example of when you have failed. And the number of times I read essays where they would say, "Oh, you know, my weakness is that I'm I'm a perfectionist and I push myself too hard." <laughs> you know, it's just it's the lack of humility is can be really frustrating and and the candidates who actually genuinely acknowledge real failure that is not just you know trying to make themselves look even better um a, a genuine and a genuine example of failure and and often the best candidates have it's somewhat paradoxical sometimes they have the the best examples of failures in you know tremendous failures because they're people who have taken a risk and and you know stuck their neck out and sometimes it hasn't worked and you know, most successful, incredibly successful business people um, can give some pretty impressive examples of disastrous failures along the way. And so so someone who, you know, doesn't really have a good example of failure or weakness, that would always frustrate me. And then I, I think also someone who, you know, there's no real sense of fit or motivation for the school. And sometimes candidates, you know, they're just applying to a laundry list of schools, and you know, it's copy paste more or less. So you know, reshuffling content here and there for essays, and you know, they don't have a strong sense of motivation for the school, and that, and that shines through. You know, particularly at interview stage, and that always is a big turn off for for business schools. They care a lot about about fit
2: and and motivation. Yep. I was just going to say, I've got a quick, funny, a funny note on failure. Uh, when my husband was interviewing for Harvard Business School, he was asked by his interviewer to talk about a failure. And so he he started with his prepared answer. And she was like, no, tell me a real failure. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, obviously works. Yeah, I mean, yeah something, clearly. Something went right. But but he was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> the, the whole prepared speech, she, she cut him off. She was like, no, 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 no. Uh, that's, no. let's get ah, let's get real i well, love
0: that real. story actually it tells you a lot about <laughs> yeah. uh, how good some of the interviews can be really you know yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: now here's a question and it's i think it has more residents today than ever because people can't visit a campus and uh, they can't attend the class at least not in person this coming fall so, what are the questions prospective students should be asking when getting to know a program? And, and, and the question may be overlooked. So, let's look for overlooked questions prospective students should ask when getting to know a program. Maria, what do you think?
2: You know, I think it's, it's really easy when, you know, if you're a current student at a school or if you're an admissions ambassador, it's really easy to be in automatic sort of sales mode. Right. So if, if a prospective student reaches out, you're immediately you go into brochure speak and you're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. And this is this program is incredible. So I think I think a good question to ask that isn't too confrontational is something like, um, you know, if you could change one thing about the program, what would it be? I think that, right. that's, that that's a good one because that way you're not necessarily saying like, well, does your program, you're, you're not putting them in a difficult spot to say something super critical, but it is a way for you to try to suss out uh, where there might be some, some weaknesses in the facade.
0: That's one of my favorite questions. You know, when I go to campus and I meet students, I say, we're going to play a game. You're dean for the day. Now, what would you do and change?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. What other questions?
1: I mean, I, I think part of it is also asking a lot of different people your questions. Right. And, and that that is a great you know, the, the question of, you know, what, are you, what didn't you like? What would you change? Those are great ways of probing. Um, but you need to have several conversations because, as Maria said, you know, you'll get the sales spiel and it, it's really through speaking, you know, getting multiple data points that you'll start to figure out, you know, what are the commonalities? What are the themes here that people, what did they really get out of the experience? What did they love about it? What didn't they like so much? And, and it's through those, you know, those multiple conversations that you will get some depth of insight. So I would encourage people to not just settle for two or three conversations with some colleagues or friends who, who know the school, who've been to the school uh, you know, do do some more due diligence to, than that. And also reach out to people, tr- you know, try to have some conversations with people who followed the path post MBA that you're interested in following. Uh, and, um, you know, figure out how, how they did that and how the school helped them get there. Delving into the career statistics, I think is really important. Sometimes candidates don't spend enough time looking at you know, if they have a target career or target employer, where are they recruiting the most and, and for what kind of positions and in which location? And, and the schools do provide a lot of data on career placement. You can, you can spend a lot of time sifting through that. And I think that's time well spent.
0: True. Here's a question: Must be from an international applicant. Given the difference in program durations, what advantages do American MBA programs have over their European counterparts? Hmm. Who wants to <laughs> take should... that, Caroline?
2: Yeah, you would like the So I don't know. I feel like, like so, Insead ob- <laughs> <laughs> like Mur... needs to talk first about this. Maria
1: and I can fight it out Brow. one year versus you. <laughs> 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 Well, so I mean, the the international MBAs are not all one year programs, right? Yes. LBS is uh, is has is traditionally two years. They also have the um, accelerated graduation option, but most students do the full two years. So, two years gives you the time to, you know, really take a step back, take stock. With a one year program, you really have to hit the ground running with your your job search right so if you've got 2 years you've really got more time to explore your options and think about different paths and and try different things before you make a you know a final decision on the path that you want to head in post mba and you know i often have clients where that's just a better path for them they want to be able to take a step back and not be in an environment where you know it's like drinking from a fire hose and you've got so many things that you're juggling at once because the pace on a one year program is not for everybody right it is it is fast At did had you have exams every 8 weeks you, you have to be prepared when you when you start the program for for that intensity and you know there's there's a lot of efficiency in that format and a lot of benefits in terms of ROI and you know time time out of the workforce and, and getting back to the marketplace quickly that's you know why a lot of people choose the one-year route but some people prefer to have the more uh, leisurely pace of a two-year program <laughs> um and and the and and the opportunity that gives you to to try different things and indulge your interests without feeling stressed that you know is this really relevant to what i'm going to be doing and uh, when I graduate and is this um you know advancing me towards where I want to be when I, when I come out of the program and that that one year goes incredibly fast it's it's uh you know it's it's an intense experience and it goes past in a flash
0: and um, even in the January intake at NCI you could still at least do an internship during the summer
1: that's right uh yes. not
0: not in yeah. the August intake but you know, I would also imagine that the number of elective offerings in a one-year program, both how many are offered as well as your ability to take them, would be more limited than in the two-year program. Wouldn't that be right?
1: Yeah, on average, probably in on one-year programs, you have fewer electives than on, on a two-year program, right? And I, you I would mean, also it, have it,
0: like two shots at a leadership position in a club probably.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, most of the one year programs do have, you know, especially a big school like INSEAD, they do have a lot of electives. So you can still really tailor the degree to your interests, but you can probably, you know, focus in or or try just a broader range of topics, um, uh, you know, explore a broader range of interests if you have the two years.
0: Right, Maria. How about you? What do you What do you say about that?
2: Yeah, I, I think the extra time not only gives you a chance to uh, explore more professional interests. You know, I, I do think that a lot of people uh, they go into business school thinking they want to do one thing, and then business school itself changes their mind. And True. one of the ways in which their minds are changed is they do a summer internship, and they realize that OMG. <laughs> that thing I thought I wanted to do is actually not what I you know it's not as shiny or as golden as I as I was hoping, um, and so I think that that's part of it. But I also think the benefit of a of a longer program is also the personal the interpersonal people you know the, the, those relationships you get to build. You know I I I envy Insead because I love how international it is and I envy the fact that you could like spend half of your time in France and half of your time in Singapore and first, you know I am a, a travel addict. And so for me, that would be amazing. But then I'm also like, well, but if I only spend a few months in one place and then a few months in another, am I really getting to to know people? I'm sure, you know, whenever people go through a traumatic or difficult experience together, it does bond people. So I'm sure that there is a, there's right. a certain bonding that goes that happens due to the intensity of the program. But I wonder if some of the other programs might allow a more, a more leisurely uh, chance to get to to get to well, you you would think
0: you would be able to create more more relationships and deeper relationships, but that may not always be the case. You never know, mm-hmm. right?
1: I mean, I would I would say that because of the intensity, and it, as you said, really, if you go through something that's incredibly intense, it is bonding. So at NCSAD, you spend the first four months with the same section, mm-hmm. and you can't move campuses until you know you finish those four months, and. You go through a lot in that four mm-hmm. months. You get to, and you get do get to know people pretty well. So, you know, I think that the really strong relationships that people maintain are formed in those first few months, first four months. And after that, people start campus exchange, and you get to know you know a broader group of people because you've gone to the other campus, or, or people are you know coming over um, from from to where you are from the other campus. So there is more mixing, and you you build that breadth of network. Uh, which is great because it's a, it's a big, very diverse class. But the, the really strong relationships, in my experience, are formed in, the, in those first four months.
0: Right. So here's another one. What advice would you give to career changers coming from non-traditional backgrounds, both from an application standpoint and for facilitating a smooth transition once a student?
1: I find that often non-traditional candidates think that they're at a disadvantage somehow in the admissions process because they are not uh, a management consultant or an investment banker or an engineer, you know, typical pre-MBA profile. And actually, that's a really positive thing because schools are looking to build a diverse classroom with people with a lot of different perspective and experience. So, you know, that's often the initial conversation I have with people from that background is don't see it as, as you know, a, a weakness in at all. It's really your strength and you need to, you know, craft your story so that that strength comes across very clearly. Uh, what you do need to do is, is show your relevance to the classroom. And sometimes candidates from some backgrounds, some non-traditional pre-MBA backgrounds, may struggle with that and sort of showing what they if they don't have a business background you know what is it that they bring to the classroom they need to spend some time figuring that out Mm. Um, so that's an important part of the preparation before you start working your application is figuring out you know what is your role going to be in the classroom what what role are you going to play in the student community what what do you bring to um to that group and also it's very important to convey, you know, what it is that you want to get out of the program and what you're going to do afterwards. Because sometimes those non-traditional candidates know that they, you know, they want to achieve a career change, but it, their their plan may be a little bit wishy washy, and that can be a concern for the admissions committee because you know it may be harder for them to find. You know, to land the ideal job versus someone who's coming from McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, for example. Right. So, you know, having that clarity of career vision is important.
0: Maria?
2: Yeah, Caroline, I think one thing that was, you said that it was really interesting was you, you mentioned, what is your relevance that you bring to the classroom? And and it's also what's, you know, you then touched upon this later, I would say, what's the classroom's relevance to you? I think sometimes when I talk sometimes with the non-traditional candidates, and just to clarify some examples of what that might mean, that might be someone who perhaps is an elementary school teacher, um, or who perhaps is, let's say, I don't know, from the military or from from just a, a completely non-businessy, you know, maybe a journalist. Um, and I think sometimes... I talk to them and I've actually talked people out of the MBA uh, because they say, well, you know, I just, you know, I want to, I just can't wait to dig into public policy and how, talk about how the government (laughs) is going to, you know, government regulation and how we can change. And I'm like, well, that's great, but you're applying to the wrong degree. Like you should, I'm, you know, they, they, you know, if you focus too much on public policy, they're going to think, oh, this is a nice kid, but wrong degree. MPA is where you should be looking or the MP, the master's in public policy, for example. So I do think that sometimes there's this, the non-traditional candidates might not do quite enough research because they, and it's not because of any failing on their part. They just simply don't know enough people who have been through a program. And so they may not have a realistic sense of, okay, you know, maybe the best path to public policy is not the MBA. It could be, but it may not be the best path or the best path. Let's say, if you want to become, let's say a product manager, um, an MBA is a great path to be a product manager, but there are other, you know, degrees or courses or things like that that you could do to also get to your, to your desired destination. So I do think that non-traditional candidates need to talk to current students and also alums uh, to get a sense of what, what can the degree, can it do and what can't it do.
0: Good advice. How old is too old for a full-time MBA program? <laughs> Is 32 old? Oh. Is 32 too old? Is 34?
2: <laughs> 35? You're they young at have... heart, John. I mean, it's, just, it's just about how you're only as old as you feel, right? <laughs> it's It's a very, very difficult question. Yeah, go ahead, Maria. I was going to say, so I have I have some some thoughts on that, but I actually am not as qualified as Caroline is. So I, you know, I would love to hear what Caroline says, but my, just super quick, my thoughts on it are sort of twofold. I think, uh, I think, When candidates, first of all, I think that what's more relevant than the chronological age is the number of years of work experience. So sometimes you might meet someone who is in their mid 30s, but maybe they were in the military for a number of years, or maybe they were getting a PhD or an MD degree. And so you know, in terms of the actual years of work experience, they are at that sort of four to five year range. So I would tell people don't just look at the at the chronological age, but look more at the number of years of work experience. Uh, And then I think for candidates who are who are much older, they're they're sort of in a double edged sword kind of a place because on the one hand, you know if they if they are if if they they might be too qualified for the MBA i don't i don't want to let someone in who's going to sit in class and just roll their eyes all day and say what am i doing here these kids don't know anything these professors don't know anything <laughs> right i i have been leading teams for 10 years what the heck but at the same time so it's like you you might be too qualified or if you're not qualified enough an admissions officer might look at you and say well what's what's wrong with you that you, you know you've been working for 15 years and you haven't gotten a single promotion in those 15 years yikes <laughs> and then i think the final note that i would say for older candidates and, I, and I've actually talked, I talked to a really, really good friend out of doing a, a full-time program in lieu of a part-time program, because there's also, you have to really think about, do you want to be in a classroom and in a an after class, like in, in pubs and bars and parties? Do you want to be surrounded by 27-year-olds or 28-year-olds? If you are 10 years older than they are, right? You might have kids in elementary school and you know these kids you know these students might be in a very different place in life and so you might not necessarily have a great time if everyone's talking about like oh that great party last night and people got so wasted and you're like yeah whatever i <laughs> i have <laughs> that that's not me right so so it's also about it's not just about like the degree but also thinking about who will my classmates be in a full time program versus in say an executive program mm. but yeah but <laughs> yeah
1: uh, no, uh, uh, absolutely, and and you know, as Marie said, it's it's about years of professional experience and uh, and the pre MBA experience. So, someone who has been working as a management consultant for you know ten, twelve years before MBA, it, it, they're probably not going to go to one of the the, the 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 top programs. They kind of miss the boat timing wise. It's much better to go earlier. Um, but for someone who's been taking a more non traditional path, then then more years of work experience can can still work Uh, and the the perspective that admissions committees take is it's as maria said it's really about you know building a cohort of people who will who will bond together who will feel that they have a, a lot to learn from each other who will Um, you know, have a similar, similar level of maturity. Um, they don't want to have people who are too young and, you know, lacking the, the sufficient level of maturity for, for the, for the postgraduate program. Um, but also they don't necessarily want to have candidates who are going to feel that their classmates are just, you know, a little bit too immature and inexperienced for them to learn something from. Um, and, you know, schools do sometimes see students who are on the older side who just don't gel as well and and don't fit in as well as as as, as um, students who are um, you know close to the average age. Um, so so it it, it it is sometimes an issue um, and so you know I think students need to or candidates need to think about, the fit. And, um, you know, if you're an older student, a, an exec MBA might be a much better community for you. And and by the way, if you take an executive MBA, you know, you'll often be with people who are incredibly successful and senior in their careers. And those are wonderful um, contacts and relationships to build. So, you know, in, in some ways, um, having that cohort at the exec MBA level can be better than the the, the full-time MBA level.
0: It's true. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, we're largely talking about full-time MBA programs that are highly competitive. <clears throat> As uh, Caroline mentioned, once you move down the ranks, there's a greater acceptance for a wider age range. Of course, there's also greater acceptance to a, uh, to a older candidate in an executive MBA program where you're going to be shoulder-to-shoulder with people that are more like you, with more years of work experience, who are more advanced in their organizations uh who have similar situations family obligations uh and fairly demanding jobs that they go to during the week and um and you'll have that in common with them and today you know there there's uh, in addition to part-time programs uh the big option is uh online MBA programs <clears throat> and we don't talk a little bit much about that maybe we'll devote a show to that Sometime in the future. Um, but obviously, the, you know, the uh, acceptance of people both without experience and with a lot of experience uh, is far more possible in an online program. In fact, I was just looking at some stats this week on Gies's, you know, $22,000 online MBA at the University of Illinois. It's called the IMBA. And would you believe it or not, there is actually a student in that program who is seventy years of age.
1: Well I kid you not.
0: There are five people in that program right now who are sixty years of age. And a bunch more people in between sixty and seventy in that program. Mm -hmm. Now, why you would want an MBA at the age of seventy, I'm not so sure I know. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, you know, it may be a challenge like, like learning a new language, uh, or playing the guitar or the trumpet. And, and that could be part of the, your, uh, your, your kind of toolkit, right?
2: Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. Good what
0: for else? them. I, yeah. yeah. No, I, I salute them as well. Absolutely. Uh, so there are other options, but you know, it's going to be harder to get to, uh, a highly ranked, let's say top 10 worldwide. School, if you are probably above 34, or 35, unless you were a veteran, uh, you went to West Point and then you had to do military service and obviously you're going to be much older. Or there are other some spe- special circumstances. You may be a lawyer and you decided you hate law like so many lawyers do, <laughs> uh, but you went to school for three years and you tried it out for a bunch more and you finally came to the conclusion that, no, nah, I had enough of this. I want a whole new life. Or maybe you're even a physician. Uh, there are a lot of physicians who actually go back uh, full-time and get an MBA program Uh and, and they get it from a good school. So those are all other options uh, as well. Well, it's been fun again, Maria and Caroline. I wish you great further travels, Caroline, on your big Thank road you. trip.
1: <laughs> Thank
2: you very much.
0: And Maria, I hope you're happy in your house in LA. <laughs> we
2: are not <laughs> leaving this house. We are.
0: <laughs> I'm not either, frankly. <laughs> and I hope all of you stay safe and healthy. Until next time, this is John Byrne with Poets and Quants and Business Casual.